Hi, this is Don Randy, member of the Wall of Sound, which later became the Wrecking Crew, doing Follow Your Dreams with Robert Miller. You gotta listen. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Denny Tedesco, the director of two extraordinary music-related documentary films, The Wrecking Crew and Immediate Family. The Wrecking Crew is the nickname given to the unbelievable group of studio musicians who were based in L.A., who played on hundreds of hit songs in the 60s and 70s. They were uncredited for the most part. These great musicians, who included Denny's father, by the way, literally were responsible for the soundtrack of the entire rock era. They created the music of the Beach Boys, the Birds, the Monkees, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, and so many more. And the movie captures this unique group of artists and memorializes them. Immediate Family is about another group of L.A.-based studio musicians who created and defined the music of the 70s behind artists like James Taylor, Carol King, Jackson Brown, and a whole host of others. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode, and I try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Stockbridge Fanfare, which I wrote for my album East Side Sessions with my band Project Grand Slam. All the guys in immediate family have backed James Taylor. And Stockbridge Fanfare is about a town in the Berkshire Mountains where I live and that I love and which is right near where JT lives and plays every summer. So I thought it fit. So Danny Tedesco, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Well, I appreciate it. You know, look, I was a kid that grew up in the 60s, and the music of the 60s was my introduction to music. It's the soundtrack of my life for sure. And, you know, the, the whole idea of the wrecking crew and all the guys that played on all those records, it's quite remarkable to hear that story, which is why I think your film is so terrific. And I got to believe that you got into this because of your father, who was a great guitarist in that group. Am I right? Or was there another reason why you got into this? No, absolutely, Dad. Um, you know, I grew up, obviously, in Los Angeles. And um, Dad went to work like every other dad, except uh, in his trunk, he had a Telecaster, an acoustic, a, a classical guitar, an amp maybe a 12-string mandolin or banjo instead of uh, a hammer, a saw, and uh, anything else. But dad did all this work in L.A., and in, you know, and his story was pretty phenomenal that no one knew. And then 96, dad was passing on. He had cancer, and I thought, I better tell this story. I didn't want this to be the biggest regret in my life. 
of I should have done this. And so I quickly put together a roundtable discussion with some of him, him and his friends, and that started the journey. You know, it's it's so interesting because back in the day, you know, the albums all had liner notes on them. And the liner notes also told the story of the album. It, it told about which musicians were on it. But for whatever reason, they left out the key guys that were members of the Wrecking Crew. Why do you think that happened? Did you ever ask your dad about that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, some of the, obviously, some obvious groups like Pet Sounds was a great example with the Beach Boys. You know, the Beach Boys didn't play the instruments. The Wrecking Crew did. And a lot of times, Hal replaced Dennis in the earlier album. Hal Blaine. As well. Hal Blaine and Ray Pullman as well, the bass player. Um, the reason was they, the labels aren't going to let you know, give credit to those guys on something like that on the Beach Boys albums. They wanted to make sure that everybody thought it was the Beach Boys all the way through. Um, there was like the association, you know, when Bones Howe had the job of producing the association album, he said, I, I'll do it, but I want the session guys to be able to, I want them to do the playing. And they said, fine, but we aren't going to give them credit. I said, okay, you know. It was just part of the, you know, in a weird way, it was just part of the business. You know, my dad and those guys, uh, they didn't get the credit. Don't forget, a lot of it was 45s in the early days. But when the LPs came out, the ones that did give credit were, let's say, um, Lou Adler. Uh, no, yeah, Lou Adler gave uh, credit on the Janet Dean albums, on the Mamas and Papas albums. He was one of the first of the Wrecking Crew era, uh, one of the only ones. Did it bother your dad and the others that they weren't getting credit or did they just kind of accept it because it just wasn't being done? It's it's interesting. I don't think it bothered them at the beginning. And I, I, I think when it bothered them is when they were out of that era, meaning like, okay, they moved on and dad went into film and TV and LPs were continuing with the next generation. Everybody's getting credit. I think that not bothered him, but yeah, he, and I always remember, yeah, it would have been good. Would have been good to get the recognition because it does help careers. Not that they needed help in their careers, these guys, they worked all the time. But I think even for their for their families and for their friends, I think it, you know, ego-wise, it always helps you, you know, mentally. And don't forget, it only bothers you if you're not working. You know, you don't have time to think about being pissed off because you're so in you know at that point those guys in the 60s they're doing three four dates a day you know three hour sessions that's 12 you know 14 16 hours a day they're playing sometimes that's what's amazing to me because they could be going from a frank sinatra session to the association to the birds to the monkeys all different kinds of music all different kinds of songs and they had to be able to fit right in I mean, that's a remarkable talent that they had. Yeah, and, and we should tell the audience, maybe if they're, they don't know anything about it, be, don't forget, in 1960, rock and roll is at its infancy. You know, when you're saying, it's like, you know, you're still kind of developing that genre, in a sense. You know, what what is, you know, being, you know, you didn't have, like, the Beatles come out yet. Um, so you had these bands, maybe, or singers, but their bands on the road were not that good. And you, if you're going to record an album, you got to get in and get out. So the labels to make sure that they had, you know, put their money 
with their best bet, they hired studio musicians. And it wasn't just LA, they did it in New York and did it in, in Motown, the Funk Brothers in Nashville. But what they did is they had three hour sessions in union days. You go in, you could do three or four songs in three hours. That was legally what they're allowed to do within the union. And they would be able to knock that out. Where if you brought in a band, it might take a lot longer because don't forget, we're only dealing with that in the early days mono, there's only one track. So you could have an orchestra there, you could have uh, a duet, you could have 15 people, they're all in a room, they gotta nail it. Everybody's gotta nail it within three hours because you got you, there's no computers, you're not really overdubbing. So if you're doing solos, you can kind of try to do them live. And so you gotta be able to do that on the fly. You know, think about what you just said that, you know, they were playing live in the studio for the most part. And yeah. that's the way that that feel came out that was so revolutionary. Okay. That's what rock and roll was all about. That feel, that energy. And they captured it just like the Funk Brothers captured it at Motown and the guys in New York. And then rock and roll took a whole different turn where, and we've talked about this on the podcast, you know, as songs were created instrument by instrument, bit by bit, they would replace little sections of a singer's voice when they had more and more tracks. But back then, the essence of it was exactly as you described. It was live playing in the studio. Yeah. You know, Glenn Campbell was one of these guys from the Wrecking Crew of the day. And, you know, Glenn said it was like playing with Michael Jordan. But he said, but everybody in the room was a Michael Jordan. You know, no one could make a mistake in those three hours. Because if you made a mistake and you're holding up a session, you're going to get the evil eye, you know, and you're not going to be coming back because don't forget in three hours, we're leaving this, this gig. We got another gig at gold star or Capitol records or wherever we're going. So we're moving on. So you better not be holding us back. You're just making us all go down. Um, so there was not a, a weak spot there. That's so interesting. Let me ask you this. Was everybody friendly? Or was it just, you know, they saw each other at work and that's it? Did they, did they get together afterwards? Did they have parties? Did they socialize? Yeah, yeah. I think it's funny because I think everybody is different. Don't forget, they're all playing. They're not all one group, by the way. You know, the Wrecking Crew. It's, you know, there's if there's any discrepancy or any uh, issues with the name Wrecking Crew, it's true. They were, you know, as far as I know and concerned with, not concerned with, everything I figured out they weren't called the wrecking crew in that day right it was something that Hal came up with later when he was doing his book uh called the wrecking crew and i talked to the publisher about it because my father never remembered it and carol k the bass player she obviously she adamantly hates the name and said it was never true and she's right uh don said it was never used but what it was was Hal was telling a story about how the older guys, meaning the legit players in 1960, the guys that were doing, you know, major uh, vocalists like Sinatra's or, you know, Perry Como's, whatever the, the pop days or movie calls, they would they were getting pissed off that these younger guys, my father, Hal and Don Randy and all the others were doing these sessions of rock and roll. And I think they were a little pissed off because some of them at the early days were non-union. They were dark dates, they called them. So they said, these guys are going to wreck the business playing this stuff. 
So Hal kind of gave it that nickname when, or the publisher and them gave that nickname. And uh, that's how that went down much later. So what I'm saying is these guys, it wasn't, it was Hal Blaine at the time, Earl Palmer, the other drummer, um, another guy named, uh, well, Jim Gordon came in a few, few years later. There were like four to eight guitar players. It was my dad, Tommy Tedesco, uh, Bill Pittman, uh, Glenn Campbell, you know, there's so many of them and not so many of them, but probably about um, Barney Kessel. And then there were bass players. Carol Kay wasn't the original bass player. It was Ray Pullman, who was one of the, the Fender bass player. And then, um, uh, you know, pianos, you had Leon Russell, you had Don Randy, you had Al Delore on piano. So basically these guys were in and out, in and out with different contractors and producers. So dad could leave, let's say the studio at 12 and go to the next gig at one. It might be Hal, it might be, uh, might be someone else. It might be Earl. So let me ask you this. When you're putting this movie together, you want to honor your father and the other guys. Yeah. Tell us what the process was like. I mean, some of these guys were no longer alive. Uh, some of them were getting on an age. How did you get the movie made? Well, it, that's a really good question. I don't know. And when I say I don't know, it's like I look and like if I know now what I have done it, I don't know. Um, all right. So dad's diagnosed. He's got, they said, 11 months, maybe a year. And went, holy shit. You know, that's a lot. It was information to like, meaning like, when you, you know, I've had cancer. I've had many friends and family. We all had. Not often when you hear terminal. And it was a real deadline and it was you no know, pun intended. And he was still in good health, meaning like, you know, we knew something was wrong, but so I said, you know, he, he agreed I, to do this. And I put the round table together very quickly. It was my dad, Hal Blaine, Plaz Johnson and Carol Kay at a round table. And Earl was supposed to do it, but he got sick. So I put a round table together in a studio and I had, two cameras Roman, you know, circling them. And I based that on my, one of two of my favorite films, Broadway, Danny Rose, where Danny, uh, Danny Rose is Woody Allen. And there's a bunch of old managers talking about Danny Rose and also diner, which is the Barry Levinson film. I love situations where they're just sitting, talking groups of people and they're talking over each other. And they're, they're, you know, Back zing, zing, forth, zing, yeah. zing. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, uh -huh. it, it's almost, it's it's a language. It's fun. You know, it's it's musicians. So here's the other thing is I never saw my father play at work. Very seldom did I ever go to a studio because you never went to work with your father. They didn't have like a bring your son to work day? No, they didn't. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, here's one though. I do remember there was two occasions. One, we went to work when... Uh, it was Fernwood, not Fernwood, well, Fernwood tonight, much later when I was in high school. But I went to uh, a Green Acres and we, I must have been five, six years old. And we were going on vacation. And my instead of coming all the way back to, to home, we just all went to work with dad because it was the only gig he had that day. And we just took off from there. And I always remember that because Vic Mizzy, the conductor, was waving his hands and dancing on that podium and i as a little kid i thought that was the funniest thing in the world and that's how i remember that that date 
most of the time, any other times I went with them later in, you know, junior high, it was President's Day or something where I had off and they needed to, you know, take me. And that sucked. I mean, it really did because you, it wasn't interesting when dad's doing, you know, Police Story or Columbo or, you know, one of these TV shows. You know, it's just music kids. I was wondering, did they use you as like a little roadie or something like that? Did you move the amplifiers around? Did they let you in the studio? Just sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make noise. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to being the host of this podcast. With my band, Project Grand Slam, I've released 12 highly acclaimed albums, including Trippin', which went to number one on Billboard. And we've got millions of video views and streams. My latest album is called Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. It's been called Album of the Year by Indie Shark. I released this album in a novel way via five episodes of this podcast, and I'm pleased to say that those episodes have been downloaded over 50,000 times in more than 130 countries. I invite you to listen to the album. It's available on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And I also invite you to check out all the episodes of this Follow Your Dream podcast. I've had so many amazing, famous musicians and others as guests on the show, all of whom have followed their dream to success. The episodes are fun and entertaining, and we must be doing something right because the podcast is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts with listeners in 200 countries. How about that? So every episode is like taking a world tour. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, please sign up for our weekly emails, which keep you up to date on everything. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, so you get these guys together. You're doing the round table. How old were they for the most part at that time? Pretty young. I mean, dad died at 67, so he's 66 there. You know, when I, Carol's a few years younger, they're all in their 60s. So what year was this again that you started this? 1996. Okay. So it was early. And then dad died, you know, 97. In 98, I, at that point, I cut something together. At that point, I got Dick Clark in the film because he had done a uh, obituary about my dad. And he was kind enough to talk on camera. I got Cher and Nancy Sinatra. And I started, you know, trying to find help in 98. And no one would help me. Um, because everybody kept saying it's going to cost so much money and you're never going to make that in a music doc. And, you know, I had 110 songs in the film in the end. And so 
I just kept going and interviewing people, hoping that someone would say yes. No one ever said yes until, and then we got to the point of 06, 2006. And 10 years later, my wife said, we just made the most expensive movie ever. Home movie, home movie, she said. And she was right. I had nothing though. I had not, I didn't even cut it at this point. All I had were interviews at 06 with Brian Wilson, I had interviews with Herb Alpert, Lou Adler, um, everybody at that point, Gary Lewis. And so I basically had to build it. I had to make it. It's like, and I describe it as having a beautiful property overlooking the beach, the ocean. But until you build the house on it and you build everything and put it together, you can't sell it. It doesn't mean much. And so I got it together. Went, uh, Doing this on uh, your own, on your own financially at this point, did you have a backer? You know, the only backers I had, as I like to say, the people that helped me the most was Wells Fargo, American Express, Citibank, and I kept flipping those cards. Credit cards. <laughs> <It's a joke. laughs> and, and finally, they bailed on me. They and it was the worst because you know. Don't forget, before 08, everything was going pretty well with the financial market, but I kept borrowing, and that was pretty stupid. You know, Was this your full-time gig at the time? No, 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 no. God, no. I mean, I was... I, a weird thing is, I at the time, I produced uh, Time Life CD, uh, those CD projects, those infomercials. Late night stuff. Which is, yeah, yeah, which is irony that it had this... That product was the stuff I was dealing with. It had no co coincidence. <laughs> So it was kind of a kick in the teeth as well. I can imagine. Yeah, but I was I was producing stuff for Comedy Central and stuff like that. So you had some money coming in from somewhere. When did yeah, the film yeah. actually come out? When did you finally get it released? Well, 08, I got into the festivals. We got into the festivals and it was amazing. Um, we won 12 audience awards in 08, 09. We did extremely well. Um, reviews were off the charts, but again, no one would help us because on the back end, I had at least a half a million dollars that I had to pay off uh, between licensing of the music, photographs, uh, stock footage, and the musicians union, uh, which needed to pay off for second, they call it um, secondary use, which was I was fine with. That mm -hmm. was the one I wanted to be able to pay. Then my mom gets paid and then Hal gets paid and all the guys get paid. Anybody that was on a session would get a piece. But when no one would pick me up in 10, by 2010, I was really down. So you won all these awards. You, you got the great response from the audience. And yet you, you weren't able to sell it at that point, you're saying. Yeah. And so then I was trying to figure out ways of making this happen. So I was looking for sponsorships. And I would go to Fender, Ludwig, uh, you know, Zildjian, all these companies. And they said, no. Um, which I was trying to do is say, listen, on this DVD, I said, we're going to have outtakes. I said, you know, to Fender, which was very disappointing. Fender did that um, because it was a connection to Fender and my father, not just him playing guitar, but he was actually a stock owner. So I knew the guys and, and they'd say, well, well, we don't do that. And I said, it's no, it's like an ad, you know, I'm trying to sell you an ad in a magazine. And they didn't do it. But so I told them, long story short, a friend, not, you know, I met, I said, someone in radio, he said, listen, I'll give you a thousand dollars. 
for dedication of up, up and away. I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know how, you know, there's dedications in walls and hospitals and everywhere else in bricks. He goes with family names. I'll do it for up, up and away because that was a song that changed my life when I was a kid because I was listening to AM radio and up, up and away came on one station. I turned it, it was on another station, but I heard the difference in transmission. And he was a, you know, he was a radio geek, you know, and technology. And that's what changed his life. So that started me on the path of finding ways of raising money through donations. And I started the dedications of songs and became a groupie. Um, then the next level was roadie. And the next level was uh, road guy, you know, road musician, studio player. And I created these fun things. And then I started traveling. I would go anywhere and everywhere. If it, uh, synagogues, churches, studios, schools, parks, anywhere I could show the film and create excitement. And I would basically, I was barnstorming. And I got to the point where I would go to a, a town and say, um, listen to the dog groomer, give me uh, $200 and put your name up on the screen and, uh, you, you know, I'll give you six seats or whatever. I mean, I did every, the best song I got a thousand dollars for. I reached out. It was Gary Lewis was um, everybody loves a clown. I thought no one's going to dedicate that song. You know what I mean? So I reached out to a clown school. I thought this is such a cold call, but I, and I, I hate, I hate cold calls. So I called this guy. I said, listen, this is what I'm doing, blah, 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 blah. He goes, oh, man, I've never heard a pitch like that. Yeah, I'm in. My God. And so on the end of the, you'll see, it's the clown school is the dedication. You know, I got to stop you for a second, because what you're describing, you know, this is like the business of the movies, okay? Yeah, Every, you know, we, we watch stuff on a screen, or we watch now the streaming stuff, and it all looks beautiful. It's all done. It's all finished, and it's all glamorous. But this is kind of the underbelly of the whole thing, particularly when you're doing a documentary. I've heard this before from a, a few other documentary makers. And I give you credit. I mean, it's tough to plow through this kind of stuff. Well, here's the thing. In a weird way, I had no choice. I had to think outside the box. I hate that term, but it was true. Because don't forget, if 2008 came and the, and the film had shitty reviews, excuse my language, but if it had bad reviews and it wasn't well-received, that would have stopped. But when you have 12 awards, amazing reviews, and, and you're in debt over $100,000, I had to come up with ways of getting that money back. And the only way to get that money back, one day we'll be selling it. You know, and, you know, that was the only way you could do it. So I had to keep going until I could pay off. No one's going to talk to me until I get rid of all those songs no one's going to, you know, these these film companies are not going to pick me up until it's free of everything and they have total access to start selling it themselves. Isn't it totally different today, though? I mean, if you were starting this project 10, 15 years later, now you got everything with streaming. OK, and there's so many opportunities for films and filmmakers to get their product out there. Would it have been different if you had started it later? Uh that yes maybe but here's a what thank god i did uh because none of those guys would have been around and i was very fortunate to get everybody in their 60s 
in a weird way when they were alert and the stories were fresh, they were fabricated. I, you know, and I'm sure. telling the truth on that. Some stories. I wasn't really talking about the guys getting the guys later, but I'm saying selling something now. No, no, I agree. hundred percent. I always said the best thing that ever happened was not getting it out in 96, 97, 98, even 2000s. It wasn't until 2015 when Magnolia finally picked it up. You're absolutely, and I've said that. It By then, when 2015 came around and, and one guy said, you know what? He goes, it was another distributor. He goes, I think you should go to the majors because I don't know. He goes, I think they thought you came and went. He, so I reached out to Magnolia and they said, yeah, we'll take it. And at that point, those years between 08 and 2015, were an amazing time because every time I went out there, I started building this, this, um, well, audience with fans of the film, fans of the musicians. And I, by the time I got to a Kickstarter project, I already had 25,000 people on Facebook, 25,000 emails as well. So I created this kind of like, like, you know, underdog thing. You know, you had an infrastructure because you were hustling and good for you. But, but, but you're right. And then 2015 came, Netflix was there. So yeah. the first thing they did is they put it on Netflix. We did 80 cities around the country or world in theaters. But absolutely, there was, if this film was released, it would never have the legs, never had legs. His same film could never have the legs in 2000. Uh, in 2000 no way you know sometimes in life timing is everything okay i'm curious when you did the next film let's go to that one uh immediate family now that's a totally different era now you've established that infrastructure you've out you've been out there people know who you are you've sold that first film did it make a big difference for you the second time around absolutely i mean here's the thing is made a big that wrecking crew made a big difference not just for me but for a lot of other filmmakers in that genre i've been told because there was success of my film there was success you know the films that came before me that were music successes were uh well muscle shoals uh funk brothers you know if there were a few you know 20 feet to stardom all those films had great success um, when my film came around, it kind of the under kind of, I want to say the, the same thing, but different, you know, we it, it didn't have big budget. So we had success and that encouraged others to do it. I was pretty shell shocked and people would always come up to me and say, you should do this. And I was like, I'm like, yeah, that's great. But unless someone comes up with some money and then in 2019, these, uh, these guys, Jack Pyatt, uh, Greg Richley, and uh, Jonathan Sheldon, they were uh, producers that were working together, and they were actually wanted me to do another project with another about another artist, but the artist wanted their own director, which was fine. And but they said, "What about this one?" I said, "This is my wheelhouse," as they say. I totally get this one. It was about the guys that were in the section originally, uh, three out of the four. It's uh, Danny Kochmar, Leland Scalar, and um, Russ Kunkel. And then Wadi Wachtel, they have this band now called Immediate Family. 
And those guys were the guys that were in the 70s that were doing all the singer-songwriter era. So that made so much more sense for me. Uh, I totally get it. And the hook was the fact that they have a band called Media Family. It was the perfect segue for you from what you had done before. Absolutely. Because the first, you know, when I talked to, in the Wrecking Crew, I kind of set that film up as, even set it up verbally I, in my VO at the beginning. I said, this is a story about my father and his extended family, the Wrecking Crew. Right. That's how you look at these people, you know, and this is not just this occupation. There's a lot of occupations where the parent is, spends more time with his, his or her colleagues at work than their own families. It's just a reality of supporting your family and they can bond very quickly, you know, long hours. And that's how it was. And then at the end of Wrecking Crew, uh, when I went to Lou Adler asked about when he did Tapestry, I said, did you change, were you changing your um, sound? He goes, oh, absolutely not. He goes, Carol King brought her own people. She brought in James Taylor and Danny Kochmar. So I was like, man, this is like someone handing this off to me. It's perfect. So we got investors because there was no way my wife was going <laughs> to, we were not going to put a dime on that You're one. not going to do the credit card thing again. No, we had, well, we had no credit cards, unfortunately, you know, oh, we were bankrupt, unfortunately, but we, we recovered. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, don't do it, kids. Don't do it. Well, you know, look, I got to give you a lot of credit here, okay, because, you, you know, you slog through the, the marshland of trying to get a movie made. You finally got it made. It had all these great awards, and it's a great movie. That's the bottom line to the whole thing. And what you've done with Immediate Family is also terrific. So I want to take my hat off to you that you were able to, you know, keep pushing ahead. I'm sure there were plenty of obstacles. You've mentioned some of them. There are probably many, many others. People don't realize that, you know, everybody talks about overnight stars. There is almost no such thing as an overnight star in any business, certainly not in music, not in film, not in the arts. You got to put in your time and you got to work it hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, luck is part of it, but you can only get lucky if you put yourself out there. You also have to have talent. Okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, like you said, if the movie was a bomb, it wouldn't have made a difference how much effort you put into it. Oh, and I and I'm thrilled with this next movie. I'm thrilled that you know in this next film it was much easier, much easier because of Wrecking Crew, but also much easier because these guys had a different relationship with artists. You know, when they're 1960, Dad's 30. He's only seeing Brian Wilson every few months, or Frank Sinatra, or you know he's going in and out of work, in and out of work. He has no relationship with the stars per se. You know what I mean? Russ and Leland and them going into the studio but also going on the road with him and that's the big difference so when there was a they become real tight with their artists and friends so when i went to uh get people to interview within six weeks to two months i had in the can carol king jackson brown james taylor linda ronstead lou adler phil collins um got a few more i mean we have uh Neil Young, we have Keith Richards in the film. I mean, it was so fast because they love these players. They have relationships with these players. You know, Jackson, I see at their gigs. You know, it's a real relationship. 
Listen, we have been speaking here with Denny Tedesco, who has made two remarkable music-related documentaries. We've talked about The Wrecking Crew a lot. It's a wonderful film. And uh, Immediate Family is also a terrific film. Again, I congratulate you on all your successes. I can't wait for the next one. I'm sure there's going to be another one that's coming out here soon. Well, let's get Immediate Family out now. Um, and anyone who wants to see the trailer, we've won three audience awards in the festivals, which is great. Um, our next one, I think, is Boulder coming up in March. But please go to immediatefamilyfilm.com. You can see, you know, the trailer. And uh, if you try to immediatefamily.com, you'll find a therapist. So whatever you like, film or therapist. I like that. All right. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. It's really been an adventure to hear about this whole story and about what you've created here. And I want to wish you the best of luck going forward. And now we're going to listen to the song that started the uh, podcast. It's a song that I wrote called Stockbridge Fanfare. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Stockbridge and Western Mass, just below the Pittsfield line. Tucked in a corner, just off the pike, a bit like going back in time. No changes on Main Street for years, though Alice doesn't live there. moved just a few miles away but the red lion still does roar there's hills and valleys and mountain streams I see them every day I can't imagine another place on earth could
Peaceful feet.